How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, can you believe it? This is episode 299 of X-Lapsed, and, uh, well, welcome to it. <laughs> I can't believe we've made it this far. We're on the uh, precipice of episode 300. It's uh, ridiculous to me, and um, I guess we'll talk more about that later here. Uh, you know, um, actually, let's talk about it now. Let's get it uh, Let's get it all out here on, uh, on Front Street, as uh, the kids say. I haven't the foggiest idea what X-Lapsed episode 300 is going to be just yet. Um, we have other books in the pile, but I mean, number 300 I think needs to be a little bit more special than us talking about uh, Phoenix Song Echo number 2, or the latest Marvel's Voices special. I think it needs to be something bigger than that. And, uh, well, uh, you know, with the holidays and, and people just being so busy, it, it was hard for me to try to figure out a way to make episode 300 special. I still have some ideas, but uh, we will uh, we'll get there when we get there, I suppose. And um, I guess it's uh, because of that that uh, this episode, episode 299, where we discuss Marauders number 26, is going to be the, uh, the sort of kind of season finale. You know, you know how we go on breaks when we run out of books. Uh, we're just going to go on break a little bit early this time because... I want episode 300 to be a little bit more special than it otherwise would have been. So uh, this episode will have, you know, the sales charts, all that normal, you know, wrap-up sort of stuff that we've done time and again uh, over the, you know, months and uh, years of this program. So let's get into today's issue. We'll talk a little bit more on the other side. Uh, this is, of course, Marauders number 26. I thought it was the last issue. It might not be. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's the penultimate issue. Maybe it is the final issue. Who knows these days, right? Uh, anyway, this had a January 2022 cover date. The story is called Many Happy Returns, which kind of lends to the idea that this could be the end. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali. Colors, Rain Barreto. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Amaro, Bisa White, Zabalski. Cover price, $4. Uh, this one went on sale, allegedly, November the 24th of 2021. Now, as has become routine of late, uh, we're starting with a mostly blank quote page. And of course, that's nothing new to this era, but I feel like we've been getting a lot more of those lately. I think it's just because, uh, well, it, it you know gives the writer one less page to fill, and when you're treading water the way we've been treading water of late, uh, well, it's just one less thing you have to do. And here we have Iceman talking about how uh, you know he might finally be reaching his potential. Which, come on now, Isn't that, hasn't that been like 110% of Iceman stories written since the mid-1990s? Can we please just move on from the possibility of Iceman reaching his potential? We've done this before. I mean, is it any wonder we just got that horrid Iceman New Year's story about stagnation? 
I mean, poor Bobby has been in this state of arrested development for as long as I've been reading these damn books. They keep coming up with new ways to show that he isn't a joke. Then the next writer comes along who never read that story and just thinks that Iceman's still a joke, so they write their own take. And this happens over and over and over again, and it happens again, this very issue. Anyway, now our story begins at the Hellfire Club mansion, where Emma and Shaw are welcoming back the newest resurrectee, Harry Leland. Now, as they stroll up to the place, Leland comments that he's happy to see that Shaw and Emma have buried the hatchet with the White Queen. I, I thought Emma what? Maybe that's a typo? It's gotta be a typo, right? I, I mean, heaven forbid any of the four editors on this book have their names misspelled in the credits, we'd probably never hear the end of it. But dialogue? Eh, who pays attention to any of that? Anyway, they talk about current events, and it's pretty clear that Leland, he's not totally following here. He doesn't know a whole lot about, well, a whole lot. It seems like he, uh, believes that, you know, no time has passed since the last time we saw him. So they chat, right? And Emma asks if he's ever heard of Krakoa. To which Leland replies, no, or maybe, he, he really doesn't know. He says he's been having these, like, dark thoughts of late. He's been haunted by, like, a recurring nightmare of being killed by a very gaudy-looking pink sentinel. And he compares this to uh, their good friend Chantel also dying at the hands of a sentinel, and of course, we know her. Uh, before we move on, let's uh, talk a little bit about this. Let's uh, contextualize. Um, now, in case Harry Leland is a new character to you, and it's a very good possibility that he is. We haven't seen him in a very long time. He did, in fact, die during a fight with Nimrod, way back in Uncanny X-Men number 209. This had a September 1986 cover date. Probably not the same Nimrod we're dealing with now, but still a Nimrod. I think when we talked about the Omega Sentinel uh, timelines during the Inferno number 3 episode, we did mention that there was the, you know, Days of Future Past version of Nimrod that came back to take out Rachel. This is that one, the flawed one. Maybe they're the same thing. Maybe they're just being kind of co-opted into the same thing. We'll, we'll figure it out, hopefully, as we go along. Now, Lourdes, of course, is the lady we met during the backup story in Classic X-Men number 7. This had a March 1987 cover date, and that story was included in its entirety during the first chapter of the recent Hellfire Gala. It was uh, Marauders 21, I think? It was the over oversized, overpriced one. Uh, we would find out later that Chantal and Emma actually staged her death in order to get her away from the abusive Sebastian Shaw, and we'll talk about his abusiveness in just a little bit. From here, Leland tries a slug of whiskey and is wildly impressed. Shaw explains that Hellfire has gotten themselves into the distillery biz. Leland next asks what, uh, what it is that his Hellfire associates are hiding from him. He knows these folks well enough to know that, uh, well, there's no such thing as a free drink, I suppose. Uh, to which, Emma opens up a Krakoan gateway. Now, sure isn't sure. Sure, mm, you know what I'm trying to say. Shaw's not sure that uh, Leland is ready for all of this. But at this point, Emma considers it a now-or-never sort of situation. And so, they walk on through and they arrive on a Krakoan beach. We learn here that they were never not on Krakoa. They just wanted Leland to feel a little bit more at ease and comfortable when he started putting the pieces together. Now, Leland, he's not sure that any of this is even real, and he asks to be filled in completely. And so, Emma complies. Leland then, with a tear in his eye, calls Krakoa a miracle, and he accepts this as his new reality. 
but, I mean, he is dealing with his Hellfire pals here. He wonders what the catch is, because, of course, there's always a catch. Shaw explains that Krakoa is currently in need of representation at the UN, and they would like Harry to be that representative. To which, our heavyweight pal is, uh, well, he's all in. He's like, oh, is that all? I can do that. Now, it's a good thing here that Leland is, um... Sort of kind of a blank slate, at least relatively speaking, right? Um, He hasn't come back since his death 35 or so years ago. At least not that I can recall, at least not in this reality. So we do have a lot of uh, leeway with Leland, so uh, it's a good thing. Anyway, Leland's gotta learn one last thing before we can cut the scene, and that thing is that Krakoa... Well, Krakoa's got enemies, and among them is Nimrod. From here, our double-page spread of roll call and cred lists our characters as Emma Frost, Sebastian Shaw, Harry Leland, Call Me Kate, Iceman, Pyro, Christian Frost, Callisto, and Lockheed. From here, we jump over to the high seas, somewhere between Krakoa and, um, well, where else? Madripoor. Or rather, they're above the high seas. Uh, the Marauders are on the hovering airship Mercury, or the shape-shifting ship Mercury, I guess. Shape-ship... Shape-shifting ship. That's a hard, uh... That's a hard thing to say. Anyway, poor Christian Frost has his head bandaged and is quite confused. He thinks that he was attacked in Madripoor, and clearly the poor fellow isn't reading Wolverine. Anyway, they're heading to Madripoor in order to drop off some booze. And with that, it's time for some Duggan-esque comedy. And, of course, yet another Bobby Drake reaches his potential sort of story. From the depths, Fin Fang Foom arrives. Now... If the thought of a dragon in a diaper doesn't already cause you to bust a gut, I sincerely thank you, because that hasn't been funny in years. Decades, even. Now, he's here because he wants to get drunk on Krakoan Hooch. So, um, comedy. Um, Now, over the course of the next 2,700 or so pages, Iceman grows to giant size and fights off Fin Fang Foom. And he drops such warnings as, quote, "'Don't disrespect my Omega-level ass.'" Kill me. Um, now, Kitty says that she's never seen Bobby do anything like this, which is a fair point, but he has, in fact, done exactly this before. Uh, from here, we get back to the actual interesting bits of this issue. And hey, since it is Duggan, who is clearly on autopilot at this point, it has to do with people getting drunk. Um, it actually is kind of entertaining, though, so we'll roll with it. Uh, it's Leland and Shaw, both blitzed, arguing about how Harry had been held back in the resurrection queue. They both stumble into a Leland-sourced sinkhole and kind of laugh at their plight together. They stare at each other and realize, "Uh uh-oh, how are we going to get out of here? And they just start, you know, they start chuckling. And, you know, I tell you what, it's actually nice to see Shaw have a friend, which I can't explain why, because Shaw is the worst, but I don't know. There's just something kind of heartwarming and endearing about this, seeing these old friends together. Um, I I can't explain it. It it shouldn't make sense, but it kind of does. From here, we go to an info page, and it's a letter from Emma to Harry. Now, we learn here that he's been given a script in order to explain his, uh, you know, missing time, his time away, you know, being dead and all. Emma says that Ben Urich has been on their nuts about the possibility that mutants have, you know, quote-unquote, solved death, which you might remember me rolling my eyes at over in the flagship book. Now, this kind of begs the question, and maybe it's a question I shouldn't be asking, maybe I'm thinking too hard, but... If Ben Urich, you know, one of the top investigative journalists in all of the Marvel universes, is sniffing around and thinks he's got a story here, wouldn't it perhaps be smarter to, 
you know, not make the long-thought-dead guy the public face of Krakoa on the global stage? I mean, there are 200,000 mutants on Krakoa, and they got to pick the one who was publicly dead for a while. Anyway, anyway. She also mentions that they evicted the Barbarian from the Hellfire Club mansion in Manhattan, which is, of course, a reference to Conan the Barbarian, with without actually saying the word Conan, who made the place his home over in Savage Avengers, which is something we covered at length back during the King in Black era. Back to comics, and it's time for... I, I think it's a sinister secret to be revealed. I think it was a sinister secret. I could be wrong. Anyway, uh, here we have Shaw and Leland. They're out of the hole, and they're confronted by Shinobi Shaw. And it's here that we find out that Shinobi is actually Harry Leland's son, not Sebastian's. You see, it's explained here that, um, well, Harry and Sebastian kind of just passed along Shin's mom, you know, between each other as they saw fit. Which, <laughs> okay, um, yeah, didn't we just talk about how Sebastian Shaw has been depicted as like this big-time abuser? You know, they, they faked the death of a woman to get her away from him. It really doesn't ring true to me that he'd be cool sharing a woman. Now, I think any time that this possibility was referenced in the past, it was kind of done. It was kind of said with like a, an air of like Leland did what he did behind Shaw's back. Like they had the affair. Um, Shaw was not the not any the wiser, but here it looks like Shaw was just like cool with it. It was like a free love sort of situation. I don't see that happening. But hey, you know, hey, I ain't writing these books, so what are you gonna do? Uh, now, here's a question. It's pretty clear here that Shaw knows that Shinobi isn't his son and has known that Shinobi wasn't his son, perhaps for his entire life. Does this mean that Sebastian, like, knowingly provided for a kid who wasn't his own? Which, I mean, we're supposed to hate Shaw, right? But this kind of makes him a sort of kind of stand-up guy, in a way, right? Anyway, Harry comically hugs his gobsmacked son, Shinobi, his, his gobsmacked bastard. Um, now, scene shift to the United Nations, where Reuben McMagic from the friggin' coven that currently represents the UK on the global stage is, uh, well, he's ranting about Krakoa, because honestly, what else has he ever done since he was introduced? Now, as he rants, Harry Leland enters, he apologizes for his tardiness, and introduces himself as the new face of the mutant nation. Now, this takes us to our parting shot, and we're at the Krakoan Gateway at Washington Square Park in Manhattan, where we have a few punks approaching a woman. Now, thankfully, this woman has a mole under her eye, otherwise we'd never know that it's supposed to be Lord Chantal. Anyway, she's approached, and so she teleports behind a punk and kicks him in the back before walking toward the gate, and she makes sure to have some Bendisonian snarkbot dialogue where she's like, Sorry about your back! And the guy's like, what about my back? And then she teleports and kicks him in the back, which... Okay, well, that's where we leave it. Um, as mentioned, next episode is the big 300th episode, which I haven't the foggiest idea what that's going to wind up being just yet. I guess uh, stay tuned, <laughs> if, uh, if anybody cares, I don't know. But um, for now, let's talk about this issue of Marauders, which... I've said this before when we've talked about certain stories, but this is really, you know, the tale of two stories here. We have one story which is quite interesting in bringing back Harry Leland, and uh, as I mentioned during the synopsis here, Leland hasn't been back in a very long time, so we have a lot of leeway with how we handle Leland, and uh, I think that is very beneficial. Of course, that kind of ignores the fact that we have Ben Yurick sniffing around 
you know, somewhat hardcore, right? Maybe not the most advantageous character to use as the public face of an entire nation. But, I mean, what are you going to do? I guess that ship has kind of sailed already. I'm definitely happy to have Leland back. He seems like a character who's just, like, kind of ripe for mining. You know, we, like I said, dude's been off the board for a long time. He comes back and he's a very affable sort. You know, he's a, a likable fellow. And, uh... I think he's a really solid addition to our, uh, you know, Krakoan pantheon here. Um, like I mentioned during the synopsis here, I thought it was, you know, endearing, heartwarming to see him and Shaw kind of just uh, sitting around having drinks and having silly arguments and cracking each other up. I, I really like that. As also uh, mentioned during the synopsis, I'm not so sure I dig the reveal of Shinobi being Leland's son. Not that I have a problem with Shinobi being Leland's son, but the... The way in which we got there, eh, you know, it just it doesn't really it doesn't really track. It doesn't really play. You know, I feel like Shaw has been depicted a certain way, and uh, this take, or at least this little nugget that we're adding to his history, just uh, uh, doesn't seem right to me. Unless, of course, we're waiting for another shoe to drop. Here we got Lordus coming back next issue, or in the annual, whatever the hell's coming next. Maybe there we'll shift Shaw back to the other, you know, the other end of the uh, Constitution spectrum or whatever. Or maybe he'll, maybe he'll take out his revenge on Leland somewhere down the line. Who knows? All told, I really did enjoy the Hellfire Club aspects of this issue. On the other hand, um, the Skadey 800th Iceman Comes of Age story, I could have done without. I really think we need to change the record here on Iceman. Ever since this era kicked off, um, Iceman has two speeds, and it's uh, either he's reaching his potential or he's not appearing at all. You know, <laughs> I mean, how many issues of Marauders, the team that he's a member of, have prominently featured him? Or, you know, I mean, in fairness, any of the Marauders team outside of uh, Emma and sometimes Call Me Kate. Not terribly many is <laughs> the thing. Um, and here's something that's kind of interesting to me. I am a, uh, you know, huge fan of the Lobdell Niciesa era of X-Men. That's where I came in. That's where I, you know, fell in love with these characters. And, um, you know, that era kind of gets crapped on uh, in the fandom, it seems. And here we have, like, the one big thing that Lobdell added to Iceman. You know, the whole not reaching his potential, being the clown, you know, uh, letting himself be underestimated and not really doing anything about it. And that's like the one thing about Iceman that we just won't let go of. Outside of some of the more uh, recent and obvious changes to the character, of course. But uh, the whole not reaching his potential, this has, to me, been like the one thing that has stopped him from ever reaching his potential, which is weird to say. You know, the fact that they won't stop reminding us that he has a potential he needs to meet, it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like we start thinking like, well, maybe this guy is a loser because all we hear is that he's not reaching his full potential. It kind of invites uh, one of the old, uh, you know, Chris Chestnuts of Aquamaning a character, right? Aquaman's character has been the Durher talks to fish guy for so long because so many writers have tried to make it so Aquaman was not the Durher talks to fish guy. And they have to remind us all the time that he's not the Durher talks to fish guy. So it gets to the point where we hear it so often, it's like, well, maybe he is just the Durher talks to fish guy. Here with Iceman, it's like, he's not a clown. He's not a joke. And uh, we hear it so often where it kind of gives the opposite impression. It's like, well, if we have to keep being reminded time and again that this is a serious character, well, then maybe he's not. And of course, pitting him against a joke of a character like Fin Fang Foom, the Durher dragon in a diaper, um, 
I don't think that does anybody any favors. But uh, like I said, this is a tale of two stories here. One was really good, and in my opinion, one was not. Uh, the art, of course, was fantastic. Matteo Lali is is wonderful, but um, overall, a very uneven issue. But I think that's all I have to say about this one. Um, Let's hop into our, you know, season finale sort of stuff here with a look at the September 2021 sales charts from Comicron. Now, these are the numbers from Marvel's final month with Diamond. So I don't know how things are going to change in the coming months, but for now, everything is going to be exactly the same. Next time out, it could be completely different. Um, I guess we'll see when we get there, right? So September 2021, the top five books, just for context, are number one, Star Wars, War of the Bounty Hunters, number one, which I think had something like 7,500 variant covers, which I'm sure probably helped it get the number one slot. Uh, Number two, Amazing Spider-Man, number 73, which was uh, getting close to the end of the Spencer run. The third highest shipped book was Inferno, number one, which we'll talk about in a moment. Four, Amazing Spider-Man 74, the $10 issue that does wrap up the Spencer run before we entered Spider-Man Beyond. And the fifth and uh, final book of the top five is Batman number 112 because, well, it's Batman. A book in which quality hasn't mattered in many, many years and will always sell because it's Batman. So let's talk about the X-Books here. As we mentioned here, the third highest shipped book was Inferno number one. And, you know, when when you see the top five, you expect the numbers to be really, really big, right? Um, and maybe it's just a sign of my own naivete or uh, my finger not being com- as on the pulse of the industry as I thought. But um, the third highest shipping book, Inferno Number 1, shipped 135,697 units, which it's impressive, but it it isn't as impressive as I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be closer to 200,000, but um, despite the fact that this one had something like 25 variant covers, no, only 135k or 136k if we're rounding up. From here, the next highest shipped X title is X-Men Volume 6, number 3. This is the 19th highest shipped book, and it shipped 72,875 units. This one dropped down 13 slots from position number 6 and shipped 22,352 fewer units. So, um, not too bad. Not too bad. Dropped uh, about 25%, uh, which isn't a bad attrition from issue 2 to 3. We're going to talk about attrition in a little bit here, but uh, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Uh, The next highest shipped book is number 26, X-Force Volume 6, number 23. Now, this one shipped uh, 66,162 units and actually rose up 43 slots from position number 72 and shipped 32,013 more units. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine why. <laughs> I don't know what what was the difference between X-Force 22 and 23. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Um, next up, uh, now we're going to talk attrition here. This is X-Men The Trial of Magneto number 2. This one shipped... 58,589 units. It dropped 30 slots from position number 4 and shipped 58,745 fewer units. That's over 50% attrition. Now, um, when you go from an issue 1 to an issue 2, you expect near 50% attrition. Um, you, you, of course, prefer it not to be anywhere near 50%, but um, yeah, this one went over 50%. And not by much, but uh, it's a little 
it's a little troubling, uh, at least in my opinion, especially for one of the you know big tentpole event stories of the season. It's uh, not a promising number. From here, we jump down to spot 41, where we meet Wolverine Volume 7, number 16, which shipped 55,615 units, dropping 19 slots from position number 22 and shipping 4,282 fewer units. Next up, we drop down to position 43, where we find Excalibur Volume 4, number 23, which shipped 55,402 units. There was no issue of Excalibur in August to compare that to, and um, I honestly didn't think it was too worthwhile to go back to July and find out where it was before that. Uh, Next up, we have a very interesting one. This is position 69, which I promise uh, I never... I didn't mean for it to sound pervy or anything, but uh, number 69 was uh, X-Men The Onslaught Revelation number 1. Now, it's funny. When we talked about that issue back in episode whatever it was, I assumed that this was going to sell, like, worlds better than Wave X. And no... (laughs) No, not at all. Um, now, well, it did a little bit, just not not much. Not worth actually changing the title, I think. This one shipped 38,501 units and actually dropped down one slot from Way of X number 5, which was in position 68. It did ship 3,052 more units, which, I mean, I guess every unit sold is a, is a success, but you've got to assume that this was a major league disappointment. You know, especially when we're coming off of changing the title of X-Factor to Trial of Magneto and seeing just a huge gain in sales from that first month. Here, the Onslaught Revelation didn't do so hot, relatively speaking. Next up, position 84, Hellions number 15 shipped 32,527 units. Of course, the writing was on the wall for Hellions. People know that it's going away, and uh, when people know something's going away, they usually stop buying it, which is one of those double-edged swords of, uh, of comics uh, retail and uh, the industry. This one dropped down 17 slots from position 67 and shipped 3,757 fewer units. Not a terrible attrition, especially with the cancellation looming. Still kind of disappointing, though, because I think everybody should be reading Hellions. Uh, next up... Position 98, Marauders number 24, another one, writing's on the wall here, we know that uh, the Duggan run is ending. This one shipped 29,786 units, it dropped down 6 slots from position number 92, but only shipped 174 fewer units, which, I mean, that's a rounding error, right? That, you know, we can say that that one's pretty steady, steady as they go. Uh, Position 100 is New Mutants Volume 4, number 21, which shipped 29,104 units. No issue came out in August, and I didn't feel like going back to July. Position 107, X-Men Legends number 7, shipped 27,254 units. Of course, that's kind of out of our purview, but it is an X-Book. And it dropped down 20 slots from position number 87 and shipped 4,507 fewer units. Hopefully we see a little bit of a jump when uh, we get the Claremont. Uh, I guess Claremont's doing a two- or three-parter uh, on the old Excalibur coming up pretty soon. Hopefully that's uh, a shot in the arm for this for the series. Otherwise, I don't see this one lasting all that much longer. Speaking of which, position 116, Sword, Volume 2, Number 8. This one shipped 26,245 units. No issue came out in August. Didn't feel like going back to July. And rounding out our list here, you know, the the cream always rises and the crap always sinks. So X-Corp, number 5, shipped 22,273 units, 
dropping down 15 slots from 117, and shipping only 1,477 fewer units, but um, those are 1,477 people I envy. So those are the charts, and that's about all I have for you today. Uh, before I cut out of here, I just want to thank everyone for hanging around for the past 299 episodes, and I hope you'll all be there when uh, we come back with episode 300. Um, on the subject of 300, like I said, I'm not sure exactly what it's going to be just yet, but I would like for uh, I would like for anybody who wants to be a part of it to you know be a part of it, and uh, you could do so several different ways here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the X books, on the show, on any of your X fandom. As a matter of fact, I mean, even if you're not reading along with the current run, tell me what brought you to the X Men. Tell me what introduced you to the X Men. As a uh, as we talk about on this channel, you know, those kind of questions are considered trite by some, but I love them. <laughs> I love. Uh, I love talking about comics history as our history because I think that they do go hand in hand and um, comics fandom is a very special thing in many ways. But um, maybe uh, superficially speaking, um, we have dates coordinating every single issue that comes out, right? At least a, an approximate date. And so we can literally track our lives through comics. So I, I'd love to hear your stories about discovering comics, discovering the X-Men, discovering this show, you know, your thoughts about all that kind of stuff. I want episode 300 to be kind of a a celebration, not so much a celebration of me, <laughs> though, I mean, any kind words about me are always welcome, but um, a celebration of us as a community and of these books, characters, creators, the, these these uh, concepts that have brought us together and made us a, uh, you know, a strange little ex-family. So um, any of your thoughts, I would love to hear them. I would love to share them. And uh, you can get those thoughts to me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can send me an email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com or you can call in your thoughts to the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at... 623-396-JERK You could also leave comments and check out show notes and blog posts over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com You can also chat us up on Facebook The group is 90s X-Men Of course, the complete audio archives is available if you search up Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill on any podcast aggregation application or search engine or go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com Finally, there is the Patreon, behind-the-scenes stuff, exclusive audio, great group of folks to chat with. That is patreon.com slash xlapsed. But as we're coming up on a half hour here, I think it's a pretty good spot to put a pin in it. So it's here I will let you get on with the rest of your day. And uh, humbly and sincerely thank you so much for allowing me to be part of it. And uh, till next time, as always, I'll be talking to you again real soon. See ya! Oh